This is Ryan Harvey in Baltimore, and you're listening to episode 18 of Hope Dies Last, Hong Kong on the Brink. What China is doing in Hong Kong is really its first step in normalizing its authoritarian regimes around the world. The city has never really seen this level of mobilization. The sense of belonging is very strong because everyone in town are fighting for the future for Hong Kong. The Chinese government has openly appropriated and adapted British colonial paradigms that have existed in Hong Kong. People knew by that time that the police were colluding with the mafia. China's completely sucked into this kind of new world consensus. The Americans need to start to walk away from the Cold War narrative. It's not communist against capitalism. It's much more complex. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hope Dives Last podcast. This is season two. I took a couple of months off because of the pandemic and all the protests that have been happening. But now I've got a bunch of really cool shows lined up. This is one that I've been hoping to do for a long time, and I'm really happy today to be here doing it. Joining me are Johnson Young, who's in Hong Kong. He is a human rights advocate and works with Amnesty International. He's also a former student leader in Hong Kong. And also with me is Promise Lee, who is here in the United States, born and raised in Hong Kong, and is part of the Hong Kong diaspora. He also works with a collective called Lao San, which is a independent left-wing Hong Kong solidarity publication. Guys, thanks both of you for being here on Hope Dies Last. Thank you for having, for having us. us. Let's just get right into what's happening and what's been happening over in Hong Kong. So Johnson, if you could maybe just give us an introduction to the protests. I mean, obviously a lot of us have been seeing stuff on the internet and on the news over the last year and even in the years prior about the Hong Kong protest movement. Maybe you could just summarize what's been happening for us and then either of you could bring us up to speed on what's happening now with the new security laws and, and the clampdown. So let's go back to June last year in 2019. Two million Hong Kong people, which is almost one third of the populations in the city, marched on the street and they were protesting against a extradition bill proposed by the government. This extradition agreement where we moved the legal firewall between Hong Kong and mainland China and allow Chinese government to extradite descents and also people they would like to extradite from Hong Kong into China, which is basically a blunt attack against the judicial independency uh, that was solidified in 1997 when Hong Kong was returned from Britain to Hong Kong. Now, the reason why people were so angry and there were so many grievances and people have to resolve by taking the street is because the government wasn't listening to its people. And the protest uh, in June was also a continuation of a series of political events that had occurred uh, across uh, the 20 years uh, between 1997 and 2020 which Hong Kong people was promised by the Chinese government that universal suffrage will be given, direct election to the head of government will be given, and also judicial independence will be protected when Hong Kong was returned from Britain to China. Those promises were written in an international treaty between uh, Britain and China and also monitoring that by the international community, but China hasn't fulfilled that promise for so many years. And during those years, there were a lot of uh, protests and also repercussions to civil societies 
student leaders were incarcerated in jail. Human rights advocates were attacked. Uh, universals, universities were also uh, under more direct controls uh, by the government, and it has slowly building up the grievances uh, in the civil society. So that has come, that has came to a boiling point in June 2019, and with so many people took into the street, the government initially refused to make any compromises, and how the response was to attack the citizens and the uh, protesters with excessive uh, use of force. So it's similar to uh, what happened in Lebanon and also uh, in Sudan in, and also other authoritarian regimes around the world that people were tear-gassed, uh, there were lots of arbitrary arrests, they were tortured under detention. So that makes things even more out of control that People are have become more confrontational, and the police were cracking down on the movement um, with further uh, uh, intensities. So right now, people are still demanding universal suffrage. Uh, people are demanding uh, accountability from the government for their police brutality, uh, amnesties for protesters and those who are uh, incarcerated in jails. But the movement uh, has also broadened its demand and also its reach to uh, different levels of population throughout this year. We have endured 13 months of police brutality and accountability issue has become one of the core demands of the, of the, of the protesters. Instead of making reconciliations with the protesters, um, the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government, they further crack down on the civil society by imposing a national security law in July this year, which would allow uh, the government to further extend uh, their power in detaining and arresting people. So um, with this new law, uh, more crimes or you know more activities could be uh, penalized. So for instance, uh, if people support or openly demand interventions or solidarity from, from foreign uh, international community, they could be penalized. If people openly speak about uh, Hong Kong independencies or even activities against government, they could be penalized. And the first person arrested under that, right, was just somebody holding a banner? Yeah, the first person who was arrested for a violation to the national security crime was a person who simply held a banner that was written uh, liberate hong kong that's it and then there are also other occasions which a uh, middle school kid oh i think they're high school kid right now they're under 19s what they only did was to make a speech on instagrams about uh, hong kong independencies and then they were arrested and just right now, this morning, uh, one of the media tycoon in Hong Kong, he owns a pro-democracy newspaper. He is arrested right now by the police for collusion with foreign forces. So this national security law is giving a very fake power and also fake provision to the authority to arrest and run up anyone who they see as a dissent or people who doesn't obey to uh, the regime. Could you guys walk us through 
you know, sort of the timeline since last year, discuss some of the bigger days of protest, some of the different initiatives, and talk about how it's felt, you know, to be part of that and how it's impacted the, the cultural politics of Hong Kong. Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the protests the last year has been super momentous because the city has never really seen this level of uh, mobilization. And, you know, again, as, as we've heard from the news and stuff like that, you know, it's very leaderless. And that's a very specific reaction response, right, against, you know, what, what people usually see as more of a center of the road, universal kind of liberal human rights approach of the pan-democratic camp, you know, which has always kind of emphasized nonviolence and um, you know, solidarity of mainland human rights and, and, and these kind of uh, this kind of rhetoric, right, which has kind of been the, uh, the center ideological kernel, right, of, of, of the opposition to Beijing rule since the very beginning. And what happened, I think, in the last year, and, and you know, there were kind of seeds of this in Umbrella already, right, was, was a whole generation of youth who, who, who grew up under, you know, totally under Beijing rule and are kind of, you know, feel like, you know, those nonviolent strategies have not worked and has not brought the freedoms and, and, and the material welfare the Hong Kong people need. And so, um, you know, I think one thing I want to flag is that I think the mobilizations in, I think, April and May, actually, you know, a lot of it is actually propelled by the activism of students, right? Just like years back during, you know, that moment when when Umbrella Movement happened and when the Chinese government tried changing the textbooks, you know, a lot of this was was led by students. And, and the fact that there are kind of tons and tons of student concern groups, right, concern groups over the, uh, the extradition bill, um, all these kind of civil society students that are kind of rousing up this kind of popular movement. I think that was really pivotal in May that really kind of paved the way for, you know, that, that huge rally, right, in June and all the kind of other rallies to come. So, yeah, the, I mean, it feels like so much happened this year, so I, I might be missing some dates. So I think Johnson can fill this in. But, you know, I'll, I'll start by, you know, there's this huge march, you know, kind of in the beginning of June when things quickly escalated and as, as protesters developed new new strategies and, and ways of, you know, holding their stance on the streets um, with the police. And these turned into kind of bigger and bigger movements and protests in the streets. And, you know, in, in July 1st, there was kind of a big, I think another milestone is when when the protesters actually end up charging into the legislative council building, which is kind of like, you know, it's like kind of, you know, where, where the Congress meets, right? The kind of equivalent of that. And basically took over that building for an hour. And, and there's this kind of this this, this scene where, where all these protesters are kind of just in this legislative council building, figuring out what to do with all the press pointed at them. And, and this is, yeah, I think it was a very momentous symbol right at the time that there was kind of a, a complete loss of trust from people on the, on the kind of central government. And, and these types of actions kept developing. And of course, I think, again, I'm probably missing a bunch of dates in between, but, you know, I think the siege at, at Polytechnic University in November was another big milestone that saw, you know, the kind of biggest and most intense crossfire and, and battles between the protesters and the police, um, you know, when, when, when the police basically besieged a bunch of protesters in a building. And, and I think the city has seen very inspiring grassroots mobilization efforts, right, where, where people are trying to rescue um, folks from the inside or folks are trying to start other things in other parts of the city to distract the cops. And, and the whole city was kind of in smokes and fire, right, for, for that week, basically. Um, and um, yeah, in terms of the movement, and at the same time, there's kind of district council election kind of right after where, you know, folks are trying to, you know, get more of this kind of symbolic victory based on these these elections that, you know, aren't, aren't totally meaningful, but I think the symbol of them winning and um, district council has people kind of going up, going about doing more local work um, in the community. Usually, 
Um, but there was an overwhelming landslide victory for the pan-democratic camp. And that occurred right after that big siege, right, in, in, in these universities, right, um, in Chinese university and Polytechnic University. I think so there was a, I think November was another kind of, kind of really important moment where there's this kind of big moment of feeling defeated, but also inspired by this, this kind of upsurge of, 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 of street mobilization. But then at the same time, right, this kind of symbolic victory, you know, showing people of Hong Kong that after months of, of protests, actually, that, you know, um, the city is still on, on, on the protester side. And those elections, e- even if the elections are partly symbolic, they're an indicator of where society is. And, and it exactly. was pretty, right. they were pretty significant, right? Like the amount of people that came into to office who aligned with the protest movement was fairly substantial, right? Yeah. So the pro-democracy can win a landslide and they control 85% of the seat uh, in this local district council election. So it was definitely a very symbolic and also it shows a substantial numbers of supporters of the pro-democracy camp um, in that election. Maybe this would also be a good time to talk quickly. Well, we can get into it later too, but the bizarre structure of the government in Hong Kong. <laughs> because when we talk about elections being being meaningless, they, they seem even more meaningless in a, in a place where like the private sector actually can pick parliament members just openly rather than through just the bribery of you know the american system yeah it was uh, it is quite unique in a sense that okay so first of all hong kong people don't get to choose their head of government so for the executive branch um there's no place for uh, any direct elections or no place for um, civic participation and then in the parliamentary level which is which is uh what we call the legislative council Half of the seats are directly elected by the people, while the other half of the seats are picked by private sector, like uh, corporations, you know, uh, uh, or financial corporations or uh, uh, land developers corporations. And they literally, like, they can literally, I am just trying to wrap my head around this, they can literally just pick who they want to be in the parliament, yes. in the legislative council? Yes, it is based in the uh, concept of capitalism, meaning this constituency, they, uh, they, this half, uh, this 35 seats in the parliament, uh, they would derive into different functional constituency. Um, so there are like a tourism industry, uh, there are like financial constituencies. And for companies that are in the financial sectors, um, they become voters. Uh, and then they can vote in the election um, to choose that's crazy. Uh, the representatives in the parliament. Um, so that's really crazy. And at and least it's, it's honest, hard. I guess. Yeah, and it, it's unfair too. So for the voter base, so for instance, in the uh, financial sector, there are around 500 voters. All of them are corporation. And the eligibility of becoming a voter is very unclear. Um, so, you know, in general, there are a lot of people who are working in financial industry, bankers or, you know, or, or even a bank staff could be a voters. That is not the case. Company, uh, only company can become the voters. But then you have another sector, which is like the teacher sectors or the lawyer sector, which every practitioners in the legal sectors and also in the uh, uh, education sectors could be a eligible voters. So you get a very uh, unfair and disproportionate system, which a seat can be folded by, uh, can be choose by a corporation, 
while the others are not. I can't even believe it. It's like Hong Kong is structured like a company. Indeed, it is. Yeah, and it was designed to be so, right? Yeah, right. It was designed by both, I think, the Chinese and and or I mean the British first, right, and then and then Beijing later, right, to to be a kind of neoliberal capitalist experiment, right? Um, starting from you know even before Deng Xiaoping's market reforms. Um, and things like that, and how how the city has just kind of rapidly become this financial center. Uh, center. And I think it's only apt that just how the government dysfunction re- directly reflects these these business concerns and and one of the world's most inequitable cities, right? And I think you know one thing to keep in mind is that both the Chinese and British government and and the American governments, right, are keen to preserve that type of capitalist exploitation at the heart of how the city functions. And I think this kind of joint endeavor, right, to keep the city in the state. Is 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 not the fault of one government. It's it's the fault of how you know um, globalization has occurred, how how the geopolitical um, framework has pan- planned out, and Hong Kong sits in this kind of in between place, right, where, where the working class suffers while 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 a kind of workers led movement seems seemingly impossible, and and it's hard to raise those kind of class demands despite like with, with class exploitation being such a kind of big indicator of how 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 the city functions, right. And another thing I'll I'll, I'll just add. To the district council elections is that you know I think the the richest districts right consistently vote for pro de, pro Beijing candidates and I think I think that that kind of corollary isn't isn't uh, isn't a coincidence. Talk more about the labor situation. I mean, maybe paint a picture of what life looks like for workers in Hong Kong. I understand there's no mandatory overtime, f- forming independent unions. Like, is that an easy task? I know that's been part of the focus of the movement has been to try to bring workers into the movement through unionizing efforts. And I also know that some of the major unions, if not the most major unions, are also controlled by like pro-Chinese government people who, I mean, how does that work? Like, how, how are the unions structured? There's two main union federations that have extremely similar names, but one mm. of them is aligned with the Chinese government's policy and one of them is aligned with the democratic movement. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that, that whole uh, arena looks like. Yeah, so the only independent confederations uh, tra- of trade unions in Hong Kong is the HKCDU, which is a uh, full name confederation confederations of trade unions. Uh, they have been a pro democracies uh, uh, trade union since nineteen eighties, um, uh, but uh, and, and also one of the largest you can say one of the largest trade unions in Hong Kong. Uh, but then they are out uh, in terms of resources. They are outcompeted by whole government uh, trade union, which is called the Federations of Trade Unions, which have also have a longer history. Uh, it 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 was established in uh, the nineteen forties, and it has been uh, in line with uh, the Chinese government. And in the nineteen sixties, the whole government trade union has been um, the forefront of uh uh, uh in 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 movement against the imperialism, in in movement against the British government, but then after the Britons hand over Hong Kong to China, this once progressive unions has then become a pro-government unions, and they fought against almost every single labor rights policy. So, for instance, they oppose the pension for all system, which it's a disaster because we have more than 1.5 million people live under the poverty line. And for caregivers and regular blue collars, they doesn't have any pensions at all. So the, the elderly life, it's, uh, it's really a torture. It's really a hardship. But then this pro-government trade union 
who have a lot of seats in the parliament as well, they vote against it. Initially, this pro-government trade union were opposing minimum wage. And um, so it did, it is really disgusting that this once a progressive union has become a mouthpiece of the party and, 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 and the government. But for the pro-democracy trade union, they operate in a way that they, they try to uh, organize workers, but since Hong Kong has been a hyper-capitalist city, and also most of the industry in Hong Kong's uh, service sector, meaning workers, are their mobility is higher. So it's, it's, it's always hard to keep union members and, and keep organizing in workplace. The protest last year actually gave a lot of momentum uh, to uh, labor movement in town because people want to organize a general strike. And people starting to realize that, oh, to have a union in place is the preconditions of organizing a general strike and a successful industrial action. So early this year, the health workers in town had a very successful, you can say, very uh, successful strike that they used this industrial action to pressure the government to take concrete actions on the coronavirus. And it has become a beacon to labor movement um, in Hong Kong. This is really one of the biggest, if not the biggest, turn towards unionization, right, in mass that, that Hong Kong has ever seen. I, I want to point out, you know, there's over, you know, there these things have been organized over Telegram channels and and a lot of workers, rank and file workers, right, have been looking into these frameworks, right, with, without initial prompting from, from HKCTU sometimes, even though I think the Confederation Trade Unions has, has since offered many, many important resources for these uh, unions. And a lot of them have since kind of associated with, with, uh, um, with officially with HKCTU. But over, I think, as far as I know, by this point, over 60 or 70 different sectors have seen new, new unions, right, from, you know, something as obscure as like just dental equipment producers to to freelancers, to dancers. I think one really important thing to remember for the Western audience is that one of the very first things that Beijing abolished, right, um, upon the handover is precisely the workers' right, workers' rights to collective bargaining, right, which was kind of, you know, hard fought by, by labor activists and labor politicians on the eve of colonial rule that they kind of barely got that passed. And then, yeah, one of the first things the, the CCP did is to, is to abolish that right, right? And, and you know, the pro-Beijing Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions has consistently stopped activists from, from raising that demand again for that to be passed. So I think that it is a nutshell, right, of how the CCP feels about workers' rights, about workers' democracy. Because, you know, I think this is such a basic thing, right, in terms of rights of collective bargaining for workers to actually be able to, you know, stand up for themselves and, and talk about their own material conditions against bosses. And that's the first thing <laughs> that, you know, the, the so-called Communist Party strikes down, right? And, and the repercussions, right, linger to this day, right? The absence of a fear for workers to organize or, or, or kind of losing that heritage to what it means to organize together. I think that's really real. You're listening to Hope Dies Last. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please head on over to patreon.com slash Ryan Harvey Music. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ryan Harvey Music. You can sign up to make a regular monthly contribution to help support the show. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Promise, you wrote a piece recently called It's Time for Hong Kongers to Build a New International Line. And that was published in Lausanne. 
the collective that you're part of. And it touches on some things, but also just kind of hints at a much larger thing that Laosan has published a lot about, which is Hong Kong's unique place right now in current history and in the current kind of global moment. We've seen a decade now of uprisings across the world, seemingly disconnected. Obviously, for its participants, there's an inherent recognizing that these movements are connected, whether it's the revolution in Egypt and Tunisia, or the protests in Turkey, or the student uprising in Chile, or Black Lives Matter, what's happening in Hong Kong, the protests in Lebanon. Universally, people kind of are looking at each other and saying, oh, they're doing something similar as we are. They're fighting for something. They want life to change. And one of the big connections is that the structures of global power are in crisis themselves. And there is an emerging conflict, obviously, between the U.S. and China, but also between a lot of other countries that are claiming pieces of territory, expanding regional power, because the U.S. is in a state of decline. It's going to decline over a period of time, but that's what's what I see happening. And Hong Kong is one of these places that's just smack dab in the middle of that whole situation, not just in the crisis, but also before. Like you guys were saying, Hong Kong is sort of like a a playground for like elites from China, elites from the West. Everyone has sort of an interest in keeping things the same way because it allows for what in Hong Kong you call white the white gloves for money laundering, for embezzling money in, in, in Hong Kong banks and things like this. Maybe you could talk about Hong Kong's location in the in the larger geopolitical dynamic in the world right now, and then we can get into talking about, you know, how that has affected perceptions of the protests. Yeah, so I mean, it's always been kind of right and to varying degrees, uh, Los Angeles Collective's analysis, right, or those of us associated with it, that despite what parts of the left, especially in the Western left, might see, right, the Chinese government is not the, the kind of anti-imperial or 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 socialist alternative or something that would bring about this very particular crisis moment in 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 the era of neoliberal globalization. China is completely sucked into this kind of neoliberal consensus, this framework that keeps a lot of these workers super exploited. I mean, I mean, most of its growth, right, even in just the last couple of decades, is based on super exploiting its own working class and opening up its markets to Western consumer markets. So I think we need to keep that into perspective, right? And 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 despite this kind of US-China rivalry situation, you know, tons of Chinese firms and US firms are still collaborating from all the way from things like surveillance, tech, and, and all the intellectual work that goes into maintaining these connections, right? Where, where China openly appropriates and are adopting American policing and surveillance um, strategies and tools for its own state oppression, you know, given especially, right? I think historians have tracked this, right? Like this turn is not a coincidence. It, it, this turn completely matches with the market reforms under Deng Xiaoping 80s, and things have gotten just more and more worse, right, in terms of you know, this kind of inter-imperial collusion of, of, of state repression. So yeah, Hong Kong sits in the middle of that. And I think you know, what, what's important for us to note is that for liberation, for not only Hong Kong, but for different people trapped in these similar in-between places, you know, this, this kind of situation where, where, where the working class is turned against each other, right? Um, is something that's wrought by the state elites. And I think, you know, I think what, what's going on in Lebanon in the last couple of years, right, is, is, is also emblemic of this, right, where, where these people are kind of torn apart by these different geopolitical factions. And, and really the way to liberation is, 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 is the fact that is recognizing, right, that these state elites are openly borrowing from each other um, in terms of strategies, in terms of tools, in terms of capital um, investments. And actually the best way for mass movements to move forward 
is not to isolate ourselves. It's not to reproduce a kind of a simply that simply like a national liberation perspective would save us, right? This is precisely a moment where we need to think out of those boundaries, right? We need to think on the grassroots level to connect, you know, which is really, you know, one of the greatest upsurges of, of mass movements in, in a while, right? This year is for mass movements to learn from each other, just like how, you know, our oppressors are also learning from each other, right? And I think I always go back to this anecdote where for a period of time in Hong Kong, you know, both American, you know, Pennsylvania made tear gas, right? And also Chinese made tear gas, right? We're both being deployed by, by the Hong Kong government. And I remember at this one point, you know, I had friends being like, okay, wait, so did we get gassed by the American ones or the Chinese ones? Which one's worse? And, and you know, like the fact that we're, I think that's already, that's, that's, that's an amazing kind of, um, they're terrible, you know, symbol for, for the plight that Hong Kong's in, right? The fact that it's, the, the fact that we have to, you know, choose between which kinds of tear gas, right, that the Hong Kong police force, um, you know, has has uh, business connections with, right? And I think that's that's a great symbol for the post-colonial conditions. Is the fact that I think one thing that I always emphasize is that it's not about whether China is worse than the United States. And I think as leftists, the point is recognizing that the Chinese government has openly appropriated, right, ideologically, materially, and all these things, openly appropriated. And adapted British colonial paradigms that have existed in Hong Kong openly for its own purposes in the last 20 years since the handover, right? You know, the U- United States law enforcement has, has, there's evidence of law enforcement training Hong Kong cops for, for decades. The Hong Kong police force is totally, completely modeled after the British Royal Hong Kong police force. Basically, nothing much has changed in its internal structure. It's the same structure of violence and policing that Beijing just basically kind of took the mantle of, right? And I think emphasizing that continuity, right, between this this kind of facade of inter-imperial rivalry, I think is is really a really important realization. Right. And of course, you know, the other realization, right, on the same the back of the same coin is that the US and the West is absolutely no progressive alternative, right? And I think this is one thing that folks in Hong Kong and folks in China um, you know, also needs to kind of, you know, really grapple with. But yeah, I think to me it's collaboration, right, between these different superpowers on very key ideological things, right? Very key material things from policing to how capital is controlling the city. Um, they're borrowing tactics from each other and Hong Kong's caught in the middle of that. That to me means we need a new type of analysis for the left. That's not just rehashing a Cold War narrative from the 60s and 70s, but a truly transnational and anti-nationalist, right? Alternative that could connect all these different movements from Lebanon to, to Chile, to Hong Kong, to Kashmir, to, um, to Xinjiang and all that. And one of the things I was reading in actually in one of the pieces in Lausanne was talking about China's obsession with law and order and how that's been such a piece of China and also in Hong Kong, like the pro-Chinese government, politicians and security forces talking about law and order. And in the US, like law and order is that's like a Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon thing. We think of that being a really open code word for maintaining white supremacist control of the money, of politics, of voting. You know, law and order is always used in a context of we have to control the black people. So it's it's really interesting when you hear some people making excuses for the Chinese government's actions to then see that the Chinese government is employing some of the exact same rhetorical pieces that have been used against people of color, poor people, and leftists in the U.S. throughout its entire history. Right. And, and I mean, there's actually a great book for this called Policing Chinese Politics, a History by Michael Dutton. This is about like 10, 15 years ago. And he, he literally traces this, this ideological rhetorical shift, right, from, from the so-called mass movement socialist rhetoric. And, you know, what, what, what happened, right, with those market reform years in the 80s and 90s. And that literally you get, you know, Chinese scholars openly appropriating, like exactly what you said, law and order rhetoric. And that persisted and that, that totally coincides, right, with this turn to capital. 
And I think like, you know, our discussions about the Black Lives Matter movement here today, you know, capital and policing can't be separated, right? And this exact dynamic has went on in the 80s until now, and it's only gotten worse, right? And so you get examples like you get the Chinese government or, or, or the Chinese state run medias, but, you know, openly tweeting things like, you know, support American police or something, pictures of Trump and things like that. Yeah, that, that, that actually happened. <laughs> and, um, you know, you get some, you know, they, 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 you know, occasionally the foreign defense ministry would, you know, tweet something gestural and in, in support of Black Lives Matter or something. But, you know, you know, Mitt Romney supports Black Lives Matter, you know what I mean? So it's like, I think what really speaks is, is the fact that they've been taking U.S. law enforcement money, they've been taking money and resources from tech surveillance from the U.S. And, you know, I think this is another thing that an American scholar, Darren Byler, has done great research on, is the fact that their whole... Because this kind of ridiculous surveillance security regime, right, in Xinjiang, targeted at Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities, is built off of elite Chinese police academies reading counterinsurgency manuals, right, from David Petrus era. You know, these things are documented. And you get Blackwater, right, uh, Eric Prince. You get these people who are literally in Xinjiang, you know, being courted by the Chinese government to build their security regime. So I think it's, it's one, on one hand, it's rhetorical, and that's really important. On the other hand, it's it's quite literally American companies, American firms, American policing methods being openly adopted, and that that accompanies its, its uh, neoliberal turn. Well, I think that's a perfect time to bring up the Western left's rhetoric around the situation in Hong Kong, because you also touched on Xinjiang, which has also been brought into this dialogue. And maybe to open that, Johnson, I want to talk to you about it's so fucking frustrating to read some of the stuff in in sort of western left internet circles especially from publications like the gray zone where you know they're very eager to discredit grassroots movements in different parts of the globe if they for some reason believe that they might run counter to some enemy of the US's agenda regardless of whether the human rights violations are real regardless of the level of massacres committed by that regime there's this i don't even want to say it's an old school mentality i don't even know what to call it it's a, just a bizarre alignment of right wing really abusive regimes coded in like a left wing rhetoric but johnson you were supposed to be speaking at an event, I think, was it a, m- a month or a month and a half ago with the Sunrise Movement? The event was canceled because Sunrise had some internal debate and external pressure not to have you because this muddying of the intellectual waters in the English-speaking world about, wait, is the whole Hong Kong uprising a secret operation of the CIA, just like the protests in Lebanon the supposed myth that there's repression in Xinjiang, the revolution in Syria, CIA has been real busy. Tell me about that. And, and I just want to get into with you guys about how it's been interact with that rhetoric and how it's affected the ability for the Hong Kong's movement to build solidarity in, in the Western world. Yeah. So for the eyes of Grace Xiong, every single uprising outside the U.S. seems to be a CIA covert operations and this is really nullifying the agencies of the people who are protesting in, in a way uh, it is very racist in a way that that great song people or this you know pseudo left-wing people believe uh, hong kong people or people in in Netherlands can be easily provoked or controlled by cia or, or the u.s uh, it's just right. not the case um as I have repeatedly mentioned that the movements in Hong Kong has a very broad support from 
different segments and demographics in town. It has been evidenced by the the landslide victories of the district council election. It has been evidenced by every single public survey. So for the Sunrise event, in my understanding, when the Sunrise movement announced my participation as a speaker in the uh, in the in the skill share of uh, of Hong Kong movement, they were attacked by Great Song people and also their satellite organization claiming that the Hong Kong movement is aligned with uh, white wing politicians and also provoked by the U.S. government. And to avoid uh, complexity, they decided to cancel the event. And I think that has manifested. There is a, indeed a need for Western or American left to have a better understanding of the dynamics of uh, movement elsewhere, and also to understand more about geopolitics around the world. I think in the U.S., because people have been living in a under a two-party system for so long, that uh, a lot of organizers or you know ordinary people they will see things in quite a back and right approach. That you are either Democrats or Republican. You are either on the left or you in the in the right. But in other places around the world, things tends to be much much more complex, <laughs> and there are so many diversity in movement as well. We are talking about a popular uprising. Which the movement would be definitely joined by people with different ideology. You have people who are in a progressive movement that's showing up. You have people who are community organizers for their lifetime, but you also you also have people who are just engaging politics who and and doesn't really understand foreign policy or foreign politics at all. So I think it's very important to state that in the Hong Kong movement. There is a very small fringe of people, a small segment of people who are Trump supporters, and as a matter of fact, the Trump support supporting Trump rally are also organized by uh, some Americans who are connected with the uh, Republican parties in in the U.S. But aside from this small fringe of uh, small segments of protesters, we also have labor organizers. We also have people who doesn't have a particular taste on ideology, but they show up because they were pissed off by a police brutality and also the injustice that we have endured uh, for so many months. So the fact that we have to acknowledge these diversities in the movement is the first step. And the second steps is to dig deeper in knowing what the Hong Kong movement or you know movement elsewhere are fighting for, and we have been very clear about our demands and and our aspiration. So, I think for rest and left, what they need to do is not to see you know uh, which activist is is taking a picture with a with a with a certain politician. But to understand and to examine whether the visions of the movement elsewhere is in line with your value, and if the value is consistent, then why don't you show solidarity with each other? I think one question that I always want to pose for these, uh, you know, frankly, very American-centric tankies, right, or at least the so-called quote-unquote anti-imperialist left, is you know, like what what right do you have to judge 
a mass movement, especially for people, I think, you know, I could say the same for Lebanon, right, who are in these desperate conditions under regimes, and, and look for these, and do this kind of conspiratorial thinking and, and trying to pick out some sort of morally pure uh, subject or actor, right, that, that you can easily kind of dispose of or write off or something as some Brooklyn writer or something who has no connection to the movement, right, which is, in fact, which is most most of the Grey Zone crew. Actually, you know, I think my analysis has recently kind of developed to a point where I actually don't think it's it's not, I think they, they portray themselves as, you know, being holier than thou, like this kind of more anti-imperialist than your average person left. But in reality, it's 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 um, you know in line with with what I was saying earlier. I think it's it's actually a selective critique of U.S. imperialism. It's that they only attack U.S. a colonial legacy, Western colonial legacy, when they see fit, and and when you know different governments that they you know authoritarian governments that they tend to like appro- directly appropriates these things and directly appropriates American, British, Western foreign investments and interests. They turn a blind eye to them, right? So I think my challenge to them is, is the fact that they're performing a selective critique of U.S. imperialism. And I think their followers and, and the left needs to recognize that. And yeah, just to add on to what, what, what Johnson is saying, this is I think it's easy to, to see an analogy, right, with, with just the movements today in the United States. You know, there are conservatives, um, you know, opposing Trump, right? There are liberals opposing Trump. They're, they're patriotic liberals, right, which, which most of the left would frankly find revolting. You know, marching on the same side because we're forced to, right? Because you know, this this goes from all the all the stuff to you know all the dump Trump rallies, right? Four years ago, mm-hmm. and even you know Mitt Romney joining a, a Black Lives Matter protest or or, or Nancy Pelosi, and fucking know. George W. Bush, right? Like, yeah, George W. <laughs> Bush is coming out supporting Biden, and it's like, yeah, it's a yeah, weird it's, time, it's, isn't it? Exactly, and and right, and and you're you know as an organizer, as a leftist, your initial impulse isn't to wipe or smear the black lives matter movement you know the, the initial impulse shouldn't be to like oh i guess there are some um i guess there are some liberals and and, and, and conservatives in the march against trump i guess we should support trump let's just not you know that's not even like you don't even have to be an organizer to, to recognize the kind of ridiculousness of that and the fact that you know the left is you know traditionally you know, it's, it's not it's always kind of marginal right and i guess up until this point things are kind of a different moment in this last year you know, of course, we try to out-organize all these elements, right? And, and this is the same that we're trying to do in Hong Kong, right? With the Trump supporters, with all these people, you know, we, we don't like, you know, quote-unquote, being on the same side as people against this kind of fight against Beijing authoritarianism. But the fact that they exist on the same side as us doesn't delegitimize the, the struggle against um, against state repression. What you were saying, Johnson, like, it is racist, right? There's there's deeply embedded in that kind of critique. And it's, it's like amazes me. I mean, I, we could do a whole podcast about the gray zone, but it amazes me when they, I mean, they came out with a thing recently saying like, there's nothing happening. There's nothing bad happening in Xinjiang. Max Blumenthal said there may even be some repression. I'm just like, what? You're coming from this position now? I mean, like, where do you get this shit? Who is it serving? And like, what's the motivation? But worse, it's not even like, I'm not even worried about the people who are like addicted to reading that kind of stuff. I think it does something similar to what right wing disinformation, whatever you want to call it, does to people, which is it like confirms this deeply sort of anxious suspicion that everything is is being done outside of your control, right? It like confirms that you have no agency and kind of nothing you do matters. Like it's not provoking activism. It's provoking this thing of like, oh, well, if the CIA actually just controls the entire world at all times and the only things that happen happen on their watch, then what's the point of doing anything? It's like it it demobilizes people. But also, and you saw this from the Arab world to, to East Asia to 
uh, parts of Latin America, where it's like, instead of recognizing that there's complex nuances that have happened as the result of real historical things, politics, economic shifts, individual people in power changing, shifting alliances, instead of just recognizing that complexity, it's just, oh, no, it couldn't be possible that people in Hong Kong could have like their own motivations. They must have been manipulated by uh, two white guys in an office in a hotel or something. It's not possible that like tons of Syrians had legitimate grievances with the regime and that the regime shot them when they protested and things escalated quickly. No, they must have been manipulated. And so what happens is like I'm like I was saying, I'm not worried about the people who are reading this and believing all of it. I'm worried about the people like the Sunrise Movement and other groups who are legitimate parts of the social movements right now who really have a base. And what those people like what Gray Zone, what what happens is that people see that and they think, oh, well, I saw this one article that said that everything in Hong Kong was a result of the CIA. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I don't want to touch anything having to do with that now because it sounds like I might get in trouble with the left or I might be doing something wrong. And so I just don't know what's true anymore. And so I'm not going to touch it. And that's happened time and again. It happened with Syria. It's clearly happened with Hong Kong. And it's so deeply frustrating. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it on my podcast, because I think the best way to confront that is to help spread the voices of people like you guys who actually are involved are in touch with the people on the ground or are the people on the ground and can speak directly to how bullshit these, this propaganda is. What the tankies or the uh, great zone people are selling are cynicism and relativism that they want to demoralize, they, uh, they don't want to demoralize and also demobilize the people. So to counter that, we shouldn't just leave things behind and you know work on our own small parts of the world, but to understand each other, to have dialogue. If you don't understand about the politics and the complexities in Syria or in Hong Kong, go talk to someone from there. I think the thing that was so frustrating and important about Johnson's you know the platforming essentially right was is the fact that yeah one some rights movement is is a pretty major force in the progressive left in the United States. And the fact that they're caving in to these demands that, that these trolls um, has raised against Johnson means that they're legitimizing, you know, these voices. It's like we're not going to cancel rally a bunch of Trump supporters harass us. Right. If you do, then that means you're, you're legitimating the voices of these Trump supporters. And I think it's the same logic and why I think a bunch of us were very kind of very frustrated when 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 that thing happened on Johnson. I think you know, a couple of us are kind of scrambling. Uh, I think that that, you know, I think we had a Lao Sound article up and that was kind of. And folks scrambled that last minute to try to get it on discourse because we, we don't want this to kind of fall by the wayside. And yes, yeah, so I think people should have a very clear look. And I think the, the problem with some of these narratives, right, is that, you know, it always starts a very attractive premise, right, that, that, that works, right, for the left, right? It's like we, we should condemn, for example, anti-Chinese racism, right, which is real globally. And yes, also in the Hong Kong movement, right? And that becomes kind of this weird gateway drug, right, where they can kind of, you know, input these views, I think that that's what makes, you know, this type of narrative so frustrating is the fact that, you know, everyone thinks they're, you know, okay, they seem a little kooky, but, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of half right. And, and you know, this 20% of the time, the stuff they say makes sense. And, and so these people are just kept in circulation in the discourse, right? 
in reality, actually, I think it's that particular move that makes it even more insidious and that, you know, outlets like Grey Zone, and I'll be on record saying this, is, is one of the greatest dangers to, you know, the left and mass movements actually able to build international solidarity with each other in such an important opening and moment um, for the left, for the international left. Yeah, I think they're an extremely, extremely, one of the greatest kind of obstacles to that type of solidarity. And if there's one thing that Western leftists can do is at least, you know, call out, right, these governments for for at least, you know, stop appropriating Western policing methods, right? Stop these, you know, I think the one thing that was really revealing and just like blatantly just kind of ridiculous was the fact that, you know, of course, you know, I, I'm personally opposed to a lot of these U.S. sanctions, but the fact that, you know, the U.S. government, right, like the Republican-led government was quicker to de-link funding, law enforcement trainings for the Hong Kong police force than the so-called anti-imperialist government of, the, of, of China or Western leftists themselves. I think that itself speaks volumes, right? Like how, 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 how is the American government <laughs> pulling back police funding faster than, or how they're making that, that demand, right? Louder than actual activists in the Western left. I think that's frankly, you know, again, like you said, it's the work of, of gray zone muddying the discourse. At the same time, it reveals the kind of paucity of what it means to even build solidarity with people, right? To actually talk about policing and, and these things that afflict our country, right? In a way that, that actually registers and, 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 and combats its spread, right? beyond um, the terms of our own nation state. It's also a question of like where people's political allegiances even come from, because Johnson, you laid it out pretty well earlier in terms of like what Americans are drinking that's causing them to think this way. But it's also, you know, like we, you can talk about a lot of things, our education system, the state of the media here. um, But also like, we think that we're the center of the fucking world. And we just think that things that happen outside of the world are more simplistic than what happens here. And we just don't like if people understood the, the, the social mobilization history, even in recent decades in East Asia, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in China, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, like all over the region, there's a significant uprisings in recent memory where people generations learned mass politics in a real setting and those things carry over into different generations and they change we don't even see that in the united states and one of the worst parts about it for me as an american is that it means that we're not learning from your movement we're we're making assumptions about it we're projecting our own sort of conspiratorial feelings onto your legitimate social movements and then we're not learning what you guys have to offer, what you've discovered, what you've thought about the discourse. I mean, I was even reading about how there was this discussion in Hong Kong about should we have a general strike? And you hear that in the US all the time. It, you guys had a referendum amongst the movement to see if a general strike was a good idea. And like, I've never heard of that idea happening, like actually an internal survey from participants about an idea. That's a lesson we could be learning about how to think mm. in mass leaderless organic politics how to come to to better decisions so we miss right. that when we read this trash yeah yeah i, I mean I, just, I think yeah, it's just, we... just one more oh sorry go ahead i knew it we opened the gray zone bottle and now we can't stop drinking <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah <laughs> I, I think it's related to the new source of the americans and also as activists right when it comes to international news when it comes to news about interpreting uprisings around the world it's just uh, major uh, international media like CNN or Reuters, and they don't usually take a very critical lens or go dive deeper in 
into what grassroots activists thinks about their own uprising. And this information gap, I would say, it's making the left and, and, and also the Americans unclear about what is really happening on the ground. I still think like, uh, you know, there's the terms about, uh, there's a term uh, of uh, decolonization, right? In, in, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, we are still in a process of decolonization. But I also think that the Americans, they, they need to start to walk away from the Cold War narrative. That mm-hmm. the, the world is not derived by two camps anymore. It's not communist against capitalism. It's much more complex. China is a state capitalist state. It is completely different than the U.S., but it is not communist. It is just another form of capitalism. So if people are critical about the uh, neoliberalisms in in the U.S., you don't necessarily need to support the Chinese way of politics because they they are just another form of capitalism. And like, it's crazy because neoliberalism as a global project was built, like China had such a, it was such a centerpiece of the neoliberal project. It made itself the neoliberal factory for the world. And sure, they had some foresight about how to turn that into their own economic development. I think that's why like the neoliberal and sort of the right wing in the US is so mad at China now because they're like, damn it, you were supposed to be a third world country forever. You're not supposed to figure out how to make money from this. We were just supposed to exploit you. But you're also like going to critique the neoliberal project and US global hegemony, but then you're going to make excuses for China who have played such a key role in building this project and are now trying to inherit it yeah right i think we're at a good stopping point but i wanted to ask you both what what do people see coming next is there anything planned and what do you think we're going to see in the next months or or even years (laughs) repercussions and crackdown will be intensified and this is something the civil society has to endure so one thing we have to urgently do is to enhance the resiliency of groups in terms of their personal and cybersecurity, and also uh, their mental well-being, because this is it's going to be a very long fight, and the government will try to manipulate every rules to achieve their goal, and a lot of damage will be caused uh, during this cause. So we need, need to enhance our resiliencies. And second, we need to galvanize more support from international arena and also uh, allies overseas. Because uh, what China is doing in Hong Kong is really its first step in normalizing its authoritarian regimes around the world. So we need a collective and global response to the rise of authoritarianism in China. So civil society really needs to work together to prevent their governments uh, from supporting the Chinese government and also to work out a new, you can say, international order in combating the Chinese one. Because it's, it's their, their, their versions of international order is not going to be ideal. And we, we need, need to solidify these uh, connections between people to have a better response. We need more connections, right, on the level of civil society and between people and mass movements, right? I mean, you know, I think this is something I talk about in my piece that, Ryan, you flagged earlier, right? It's that it's been such an oversight, I think, for Hong Kongers to simply focus, or not simply focus, but kind of, you know, primarily focus, right, on 
on Congress on, on, on these kind of lobbying efforts, right? Where the end goal is, you know, a bill that the U.S. can push out and support a movement. But we have seen, right, in the last year that, you know, bill after bill, sanction after sanction, the, the situation has not gotten better. You know, very, very pragmatically speaking, I think, you know, of course, we need international advocacy on that level of things, right? I think especially when we need to secure political kind of asylum stuff for folks, right? So this discourse around BNO and things like that is, is fruitful in two ways, right? One, in the sense that, you know, it's very pragmatic, like we, we want to secure some safe spaces, right, for political refugees in, in, in the months and years moving forward. Now, on the second hand, right, you know, discourse around the BNO, right, for, for UK citizenship or UK political asylum. You know, that, that could actually directly bring into dialogue, right, like Hong Kong organizers and, you know, talking about the, the kind of limitations, right, and problems of, of Western immigration systems, right? Why are we prioritizing, prioritizing certain refugees over others? And how can we as Hong Kongers kind of go into dialogue, right, with Syrian organizers and, and other organizers to talk about, you know, these problems that are also inherently in, in, in the Western order, while at the same time, you know, we can fight, fight on these multiple levels, right? building these connections through these kind of debates or, or, or discussions with civil society groups, with unions, with student groups, and, and things like that. And I think despite what's going on, but also like because of what's going on with the repression in the last months and the last two months, I think looking into these different arenas or avenues of solidarity is only going to be more and more important, right? And I think the role for diaspora in connection with other community organizations is going to go more and more important as the movement, you know, unfortunately may go into a bit of an ebb. So I think I would encourage and just kind of piggyback off of what, what, what Johnson was saying in terms of um, solidifying and continue pursuing these alliances. This is where, you know, people like us here in diaspora, right, you know, actually have a very active and important role moving forward, despite the kind of uncertainties on the ground in Hong Kong. If you're listening to this still, put Grey Zone down, pick up Lao San, take a look at some of the stuff they've written. Thank you guys both for chatting with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Hope Dies Last is recorded and produced by me. Thank you to both of our guests today. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen on. And if you can afford to, head on over to patreon.com slash Ryan Harvey Music and sign up to become a monthly donor and help support the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned. I'll have a new episode back up in two weeks. Take care, y'all. Stay safe.